AM. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 19, King George III. No study of the Revolutionary War would be complete without examining the chief adversary of the colonists, King George III. As the face of the British government, George III was hated and vilified by the American colonists on a regular basis. The fact that the Declaration of Independence is mostly composed of a list of grievances about the king himself should tell us that his role in this story is essential. However, what is most interesting about studying George III is the debate surrounding his actual role in bringing on the American War for Independence. Now, George was born in 1738 in London, and he never left southern England. He was the son of Frederick, Prince of Wales, and the grandson of King George II. He was a member of the House of Hanover, a family of German descent whose reign had started with the coronation of George's great-grandfather, King George I. Interestingly, the House of Hanover was so authentically German that George III was actually the first king in his line whose first language was English instead of German. Now, George III was crowned king of Great Britain, France, and Ireland in 1761 at the age of 23. Now, to digress for a moment, you may be wondering why King of France is included in George's title. This title certainly sounds bizarre because no British king ever ruled France, but from 1340 until 1800, every British monarch made a claim to the French throne. For four and a half centuries, British kings and queens believed that they had a right to rule France. Now, returning to the coronation of George III, the most pressing issue of the young king's early reign was the Seven Years' War which was known in North America as the French and Indian War, and which I discussed in an earlier podcast. Now, the war had started under his grandfather, George II, but with his passing, George III took over not only the crown, but the management of the war as well. Two years in to George's reign, the Treaty of Paris was signed, formally ending the war and massively expanding Britain's colonial holdings. As I've mentioned in past episodes, Britain's acquisition of Canada, several Caribbean islands, and part of the Louisiana Territory was more of a curse than a blessing, putting massive financial stress on England that, oh, by the way, had doubled its national debt during the French and Indian War. The young King George, who had only been on the throne for two years, now had to work with an aggressive and unpredictable parliament to formulate the best strategy for keeping order in the new world. Thousands of Indians and former French colonists now fell under the authority of the crown, though there was no guarantee that they would voluntarily submit to George as their king. In addition, British colonists had already begun moving westward into the undefended frontier, and they expected the British army to protect them. Finally, and most importantly, King George had to figure out a way to handle these new complications while paying off that massive debt that Britain had accumulated during the war. To deal with the problem of the Western frontier, George passed the Royal Proclamation Act of 1763, barring American colonists from traveling west of the Appalachian Mountains. This measure, as I pointed out in an earlier podcast, was meant to preserve Britain's resources and money by reducing the demand for soldiers on the Western frontier. In addition, with the recent outbreak of Pontiac's Rebellion, George decided that such a law was necessary for the protection of the colonists. 
Though the intentions behind the Proclamation Act were focused on fiscal preservation and the safety of colonial settlers, the American colonists received it as an unwarranted and heavy-handed restriction of their freedom to settle land that they had just finished fighting for. Thousands of colonists openly defied the proclamation by settling west of the Appalachian Mountains and braving the dangers of the frontier. The crisis of the public debt led George III to support the Sugar Act, the Currency Act, and the Stamp Act, just to name a few. All of these initiatives were intended to raise revenue for the British government, and all of them were bitterly received in the colonies, some to the point of violence. The Stamp Act provoked particularly vitriolic reactions from colonists in virtually every North American settlement, and George was forced to authorize its repeal in 1766 after a long year of lawless violence and poor enforcement. This brings me to a provocative counterargument that has circulated in the historical community for some time. Now, it's indisputable that George III was labeled a tyrant by the colonists in his own lifetime, and the blame for the rebellion in the colonies was laid at his feet. However, a growing number of historians have begun to look to Parliament as the source of controversy during George's reign, which would make the king more of an accomplice than an initiator. They point out that although King George had significant power in the British government during his reign, he was still a constitutional monarch. Now, George was by no means an autocrat. He had to operate within the restrictions of his own government. Parliament had passed many bills and agreements over the previous centuries limiting the power of the monarch and making itself the originator of most of government's actions. This is the reason why the Stamp Act, the Tea Act, the Sugar Act, and others were all written in Parliament and were only signed into law by the king. Knowing the importance of Parliament, it's important to discuss the changing regimes of the House of Commons during George's reign. King George had a reputation for supporting the Tory party, who had traditionally been strong supporters of the monarchy. But from 1763 until 1770, the Whig party controlled Parliament under the leadership of George Grenville, and it was on their watch that the Proclamation Act, the Sugar Act, the Currency Act, and the Stamp Act were passed. Even though the Whigs were not George's party of preference, they managed to work with the king to raise revenue for the public debt. Because of the revenue measures passed by Grenville and the Whigs, the 1760s were a decade of slowly growing colonial animosity towards both the king and parliament. But in 1770, the Tories retook control of parliament under the leadership of Lord North, who was concerned almost exclusively with the American issues. I will cover the North Parliament in greater detail later, but for this podcast, it's important to note one crucial act of Parliament that drastically changed the relationship between the old and the new worlds. The disputes between the king and the colonists took a definite turn for the worse when the Tories passed the Tea Act in 1773, and the resulting violence marked what might have been the darkest time in George's reign. In brief, the Tea Act gave a monopoly on the American tea trade to the East India Company, meaning that... American distributors could only buy tea from England. Merchants in the port cities of New York, Philadelphia, and Boston reacted harshly to this imposition, and the protest culminated in the infamous Boston Tea Party. On December 16, 1773, a group of colonists known as the Sons of Liberty boarded a British vessel in Boston Harbor and tipped its payload of tea overboard as an act of protest. The value of this tea was estimated to have been about 90,000 pounds. Needless to say, this provocative act of protest did not go unnoticed in America, and the news of it spread across the colonies. 
However, even more impressive was the infamy of the act in Britain. In the eyes of the king, the Boston Tea Party was a serious and egregious offense, and he responded by demanding that Parliament take swift and decisive action in response. First, Lord North and the Tories passed the Boston Port Act, which shut down the Port of Boston until the cost of the tea was repaid to the East India Company. Second, the Massachusetts legislature was reconfigured so that its upper house was directly appointed by King George, rather than popularly elected by the people of Massachusetts. In other words, the king responded to the Boston Tea Party by tightening his grip on the colony, rather than easing tensions. Historians consider the Boston Tea Party to be the turning point in King George's attitude toward the colonies. Before 1773, the king was constantly searching for political solutions to disputes with the colonists. In addition, there is evidence that his consideration and care for the colonies did not go unnoticed in America. In one example, New Yorkers built a statue of the king to celebrate the repeal of the Stamp Act in 1766. What is interesting to note about this event is that George was viewed not as a tyrant working in league with the aggressive parliamentarians, but as a defender of colonial interests against the legislature. However, after the Boston Tea Party, King George took a much more heavy-handed approach in bringing the colonies back in line. George supported the Coercive Acts, also known as the Intolerable Acts, which were passed in the wake of the Boston Tea Party, largely as a means to punish the colonists for their lawlessness. These only served to multiply colonial contempt for British rule. Finally, in 1776, relations with the colonies had soured to such an extreme that they declared independence and the Revolutionary War began, and the United States of America was recognized as an independent country in 1783. Throughout the Revolution, King George was anything but willing to grant the colonies the independence they sought. Based on the history of the Revolutionary War, there was no disputing the king's commitment to keeping the colonies under the British flag. However, historians differ on how we should perceive George's wartime policy. On one side of the debate, some historians portray King George as a bitter tyrant, desperately clinging to his imperial possessions. According to this portrayal of the king, he would have fought the colonies not only to retain them, but also to punish them for the rebellion considering the colonists to be less than Englishmen and worthy of discipline. This tended to be the portrayal of George by historians during the Victorian period. However, more recently, an alternative opinion has emerged. These revisionists consider themselves to be realists, saying that George did exactly what any king would have done in his situation. After all, who could blame the king for wanting to keep what had always belonged to Britain? Also, they argue, King George was much less ruthless in his attempts to put down this rebellion than other British kings had been in the past. With these things in mind, maybe King George was not really the tyrant the colonists thought him to be. No matter which side of the debate we settle on, there's no disputing the fact that King George had become an enemy of the colonists. He was the face of the British imperial government, and all of the colonists' grievances were laid at his feet. As I mentioned at the top of this podcast, the Declaration of Independence contains numerous grievances aimed directly at King George III. Eighteen of these statements begin with the words, he has, referring directly to the king, and another nine are laws that the colonists blame King George for allowing to pass. During those days of revolution, George was labeled a tyrant, and he is largely remembered as one today because of his role in the American War for Independence. 
However, what many people do not remember is that King George humbly accepted the fact of America's independence after the conclusion of the Revolutionary War. When John Adams, who had been appointed the American minister to Britain, arrived in George's court, the king received him in a cordial and friendly way. Regarding the revolution, the king said to Adams, I was the last to consent to the separation. But the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. These words sound more like the words of a dignified, realistic monarch than a tyrant who was bitter until death. At this point, most people's memory of George III ends because his role in the revolution was the extent of his interaction with America. However, for the remainder of his reign, King George experienced profound challenges such as the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. As an individual, George's most hard-fought battle was with his own supposed mental illness. The movie from the early 1990s, The Madness of King George, deals with George III's bouts with his disease that many believe was acute, intermittent porphyria. Historians speculate that his insanity may have been caused by this genetic disease or by arsenic poisoning from an unknown source. But if you're wondering, as I was, what acute intermittent porphyria is, it is, to be succinct, not actually a psychiatric disease, but more a problem of synthesization of hemi at the microchondrial level. Now, I have absolutely no idea what that all means, and I probably just mispronounced all of those words, but what it does is it leads to seizures, extreme nausea, and serious physical pain, typically in the stomach. It can be dealt with by serious doses of opiates and infusions of high-carbohydrate carb items like glucose, i.e. sugar. Which is all to say that the sufferers of AIP, like King George III, and is to be hypothesized Vincent van Gogh, lived in complete and utter physical misery, which some believe, of course, would lead to mental instability. Beginning in 1788, George III would fight periodic bouts of what was thought to be insanity, but was, of course, intermittent acute periphia, returning to the throne when he had been declared stable. However, in 1810, George was again diagnosed as being clinically insane, and he lived in isolation until his death in 1820. George III is often remembered as a tyrannical imperialist and the enemy of the founding fathers in the Revolutionary War. Whether he was the despot they declared him to be, or whether he was simply following the will of an out-of-control parliament, is up for debate. However, he will be forever remembered as the last king to rule over the American colonies the final remnant of the old world losing its grip on the liberated, independent new world. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and is written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.